Welcome to the DC Growth Show presented by Banknotes, minted by Hashtag Paid, where we talk about all things e-commerce, retail, and D2C. My name is Ian, and today I'm joined by my friend and all-around marketing and product all-star, Andy Rosenberg, for a unique episode where we're going to break down marketing lessons that can be learned from the rise and fall of athletic brand and one. Hey, Andy. Hey, Ian. It's great to be on the show. Uh, all-star, that's way too kind. I would say the uh, the 92 all-star team... Uh, is really what we should be talking about. I, I miss those days. Yeah. So for those listening and maybe not going to watch the video, I'm wearing um, an NBA All-Star 92 shirt, which is probably like one of the iconic kind of jerseys for the All-Star game and the shirts from Homage, which is like a really cool t-shirt company out of Columbus, Ohio. But um, basically the genesis for, for Andy and I just getting together for like kind of a unique episode of this uh, DDC Growth Show is just there's been two documentaries recently about N1. And for those who don't know, N1 is a brand of the starting in the 90s, was really about street ball and streetwear and, and kind of getting back to the street ball roots of basketball, the playground game. And um, most recently, there was an episode on uh, of Untold on Netflix that dove into like the rise and fall of N1. And it really just got me thinking um, there are like a ton, a ton, a ton of marketing lessons in, in what I watched in that like an hour and 20 minutes. And I thought, you know, um, Andy, you're, you're from the tri-state area like myself. Um, I was like a gym rat growing up. I played a lot of ball uh, during the summers and, and just like kind of really thought it was super interesting, like with the parallels there between like what happened and one and like just things that we can learn today with, with marketing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm five foot seven on a good day. So, you know, my uh, point guard career was cut short uh, right around middle school, high school. I was, I played soccer, but uh, I always tried to compete. Um, I miss those days. Those were super fun. Uh, I remember when and one came out and, you know, all my friends ran out and got it right away and we felt awesome. And while my jump shot need a lot of work, at least I could talk, uh, talk the talk and kind of walk the walk uh, up to a certain point uh, when I was wearing and one. Yeah. Or, um, I mean, I think like the first thing I want to bring up is like, there's this whole idea of like the super consumer, right. Or, you know, the super fan, the super consumer, the super user. And I think like, and one did such a great job of like understanding who his audience was and just diving like so deep into that and understanding like we weren't about um, the basketball purist. We weren't about like, you know, Naismith and like, why did we, you know, why are they allowing the dunk? Like we're, we're, we're about the Rutger. We're about the street ball. We're literally about like the urban roots of, of, of basketball. And, um, and I think their ability to dive into that, particularly in a time like where the NBA was, like David Stern in the NBA was going through a lot with like tattoos and going through like Allen Iverson was coming in and was being termed a quote unquote thug at the time. Right. And like, and there was a lot going on in terms of like backlash against like, so let's, let's be completely honest of like the NBA getting too urban and NBA and, and one just like said, you know what? Like those shoppers are our core and they're our super consumer. Like let's dive wholeheartedly into that. Yeah. And what makes that even more amazing, you know, looking back at it now, he didn't have Facebook data to spit out and look at or targeting abilities to make this pretty big leap and assumption. Uh, they had obviously uh, Wharton uh, to help out with and then they're coming out. Um, but um, they really, you know, understood cult, the culture of basketball. And I think that that's what separated them from a lot of the blandness in the category at the time. Um, which eventually, as we see in the Untold documentary, Nike eventually catches up to. And, um, you know, 
But before that point, you know, they were going out a little bit on a limb, but had a really great gut sense of where this would fit in the product market. They started selling out of the, their trunks, which I thought, you know, is, is a great underdog story that everyone loves. Um, I think, you know, DSC today, we might have to start doing that as well uh, if we if we can't <laughs> improve some of these efficiencies right now. Um, but I like that mentality and that spirit. And I think that's something to take away from from both those documentaries uh, into how we can apply this in in the crazy landscape that we see post iOS 14.5 today, I had to get that iOS 14.5 plug yeah. in early. You know, <laughs> shout out to uh, to Apple for making things chaotic. Yeah, or I, I think like it's super interesting because like this was a basket. This was a, this was an apparel brand. Eventually, got into sneakers. I mean, you know, they signed Stefan Marbury as like their first, you know, to to wear their sneakers initially, and yet, you know. They, to your point, like they they weren't working in digital. There was no Facebook. There was no Google. Like I, I'm like <laughs> I'm someone as a marketer who's always like complaining about like ah oh, the space is so crowded now. Like good luck cutting like getting in you know getting kind of uh, awareness or eyes on your product in such a crowded market, regardless of what the vertical is. And yet these guys were like they didn't have digital. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have any of these channels that we have now. And yet they were at one point, they were second to um, Nike and were the top rated television show on ESPN beyond SportsCenter. Like, I mean, it's it's an incredible story. And I guess for me, it just like reminds me like, do, if, you're, if you're good at your job and you have a good product, there's there's still ample kind of, uh, of greenway there for you to, to get your product in front of the right people. Well, and like, I don't know if and one could exist today, starting from scratch, uh, based off of how they went about starting the brand. They weren't going on TikTok. They weren't going on Instagram and finding micro influencers, right? Or up and coming talent, or even like a major basketball TikTok star. Um, they were going to Rucker Park. They were going to different basketball courts in across the country to find the talent they knew would uh, captivate live audiences, but also have that transfer on to national audiences. And so I, I just don't know if if that would happen today. You know, I think I think there are a lot of ways that we went that we currently go about where we take the digital and we try to apply it into a uh, solution for a national audience. And the heart and soul of and one was actually knowing that collective group of super niche local audiences that truly had a passion for basketball. And that was the common denominator there. And really led, you know, most of the early brand decisions and also ultimately made it pretty tough to scale as we see towards the end of the documentaries. Um, you know, these homegrown stars eventually realized that they were stars, too. And, you know, they did a good job in, in trying to combat that. But that's going to happen as you scale as a company and you, you they grew their own influencers, essentially, and, and mm -hmm. create the platform for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, it, yeah, there's so much, so much on back there. I mean, I think to your point, like to win the micro community of, you know, for them, it was really like the tri-state area. Like they didn't even go out west, right? Like they weren't even touching like the basketball communities in California or anything. And then ultimately, like, yeah, there is still this sense of like, if you could win the metros, then the rest of the country will kind of follow suit and start to glom onto it. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to, um, it, it's, it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's, let's, I mean, you brought up the idea of like making their own influencers. I mean, I think that's another aspect is like the basketball players became the influencers. Um, and it really kind of at the end, and for those who haven't watched it yet, like the end of the untold, um, there was some friction between the basketball players who were on the N1 tour and the management. And ultimately, 
you know, um, this, the company was acquired and, and the founders made quite a bit of coin. And um, one of the founders said, like, in retrospect, he wishes the, the players were not contract, but rather employees so that they could have made out uh, with that acquisition sum. And, and they didn't. And I think it really just brings about like a really interesting question of like how influencers and creators are, are being used and are, I, I really don't even know what the question is. It just, it just really was just a really interesting um, take of how like this was even, an, uh, I mean, this was an issue back in the early 90s, mid 90s, where um, the influencers were, were, you know, helping raise the brand, but maybe didn't always have a stake in the brand. Didn't have a stake in the brand and outside of the brand, they didn't have a huge platform to raise their own profiles the way that, you know, creators and influencers uh, do today, right? So they weren't growing their own social media. Uh, I don't want Yeah, no, I mean, we're still talking 2004, 2005. This is, you know, right when Facebook is, is coming onto the scene or, uh, yeah, because I was, you know, I'm dating myself, but my first year over at NYU was when Facebook was, was launching. So um, they still had to build, they were still tied to N1 to help raise their profile. Um, as you see, when Reebok gets involved and ultimately Nike, that's when it becomes uh, a bigger challenge. So it's actually other brands that were, you know, really bringing the heat on for and one versus uh, in today's, you know, landscape, we see a lot of creators, some start on their own and the brand follows or comes after their fame, right? Which is a much different process. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really interested currently right now on brands that are, you know, celebrity packaged goods, for example, you know, how that's coming into the market currently. Um, you're dealing with uh, a, a, an audience already that has millions and millions of followers and launching the product second. Um, you know, I think if and one had tried to do that uh, today, I, I just I don't know if it could be done. This is why I think, again, how they went and took that localized approach um, the equity component is complicated, right? I think they're learning there, but these are also just three to four guys out straight out of college who really don't yeah. know anything about that. This is before influencers and creator marketing as it is existed uh, altogether. Sure, you had the MBA athletes of the world and sponsorships, and there's a lot of great material right now on Converse courting, you know, Magic and 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 Larry. Ultimately, Jordan going, you know, with you know as well with with Nike. Um, you know, I've been watching a lot of basketball, There's a lot of great basketball content <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think and one was, was saying, Hey, like we need to build this brand from the ground up. Um, we're going to take this talent with us and we're going to have this talent grow, but I don't think they anticipated just how quickly the talent would grow with them. And that ultimately, you know, became a challenge, I think towards the mm -hmm. end. And, uh, and today it'd be much more complicated because I think you'd already have, the talent would already have a lot of built-in audiences and metrics to send back to say, hey, like, I think there are companies right now where this current problem exists and shows itself. Peloton being a great example of, you know, trying to keep these really popular instructors top of mind. Sure. And, but, you know, they're also competing with each other with social metrics and how, mm -hmm. how people are taking their classes and all of it's married. So I, I just, I think it was such a, such an interesting time for a company like N1 to launch. I'm not sure, and this is like a question I'd love like the audience to say, could N1 launch today um, mm -hmm. in, in, in this, you know, in any form? Um, right. I think that's tough. Yeah, I think it's, that's a super, super good point. And I think like back to the utilizing influencers and could it happen today? I mean, I think one of the things that the, the documentary shows is like, 
hey, these are these are street ballers. They really didn't have any opportunity to play in the NBA. I mean, their days were over in terms of playing largely. And through N1, you know, they got to stay at these great hotels. They got to travel internationally. And that was sort of in addition to like signing contracts. Um, but And that was like the carrier, right? Like, oh, was, I got all these opportunities. I got all that thanks to N1. We know if you kind of juxtapose that against today, um, that's not enough. You, the brand just can't come and say like, like over at hashtag page, you know, where we talk about like, don't get, you can't get paid in product, right? Like you have value, like you have value as the creator promoting the brand. So like, you know, that wouldn't happen today. It wouldn't happen. Like, Oh, you get all the N1 shirts and all the N1 swag. And we're going to put you in these hotels. Like, like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm helping your bottom line by X. And I expected a percentage of that. And that's what, what, you know, and we've all just become more educated in how that world should work. Yeah. I mean, I think athletes used to be on a certain pedestal, right? Where they knew their value. They knew that they would be able to get these endorsement deals. Um, and, you know, we, we kept sponsorship deals, right? For brands to a very, you know, isolated, you know, unique group of people who already had this fame built in by TV exposure, built in by um, performance, you know, in terms of on the court, not on social, not in terms of earned media value. I mean, earned media value is a completely different thing uh, than what it is today. Um, and so it really gave a lot of, I think, and one really gave a lot of, you know, voice and attention, as you mentioned, to players who weren't going to be able to make the NBA, create these star talents um, and invest in them through the product, right? Through mm-hmm. the brand itself. Um, and I don't know how, like, that's not a bad thing, but I think they couldn't see just how popular it would get and how much of it hinged on these personalities. People were coming out to these stadiums that were selling out to see the professor, to see, mm. you know, these personalities that had long just been street legends scale and, and grow across the country. And I think that's ultimately where it got to this inflection point where they couldn't balance the national attention with the localized popularity that was built into the roots of the brand. Sure, sure. So um, for all of us, you know, marketers and going back to our marketing roots and like a a fun, not fun exercise of like the SWAT, right? Like one of my things was at the end of this episode was the the big T, the the big threat was, was Nike. And then ultimately Nike comes out with, I think it was 2001, comes out with, you know, basically, in my opinion, the best basketball commercial ever made. Um, and if, you know, for anyone listening, watching, just kind of go on YouTube, look up 2001 Nike streetball commercial, but basically it's just, it's, it's, it's choreography. I mean, it's amazing. It's like, just this great basketball dribbling exposition, you know, display, uh, but, but it, it was just amazing. And it was basically just Nike putting its stake in the ground saying, um, saying we're here, like, we're going to, we're going to take you on in terms of this streetball kind of culture and this audience and this market. And, and they knew they were done after that they knew they were shot like um and i think like you know no matter how good you are and, and i guess i kind of bring it back like we have right we have the amazons of the world and netflix back in a little going down a little bit but you, there are these big players who are always just like at any given point they could decide yeah what you're doing really well i want to do that and 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 i'm gonna take it and i think like that was a threat that was almost unavoidable like yeah i don't know what they could have done legacy retailers, legacy brands, right? I, I think we're seeing a very similar moment right now in that, um, you know, one of the biggest 
NFTs threats uh, to, to DC at the moment are legacy retailers who are building up their e-com branches. They're taking a reverse path. So much of DTC started with e-com and now it's going to brick and mortar retail. And now you have a bunch of legacy retailers who are still the giant whales in the ocean swallowing the right. guppies up um, because they have the dollars and they have the margin capabilities and the efficiencies or the ability to be inefficient um, to make all of this happen. And I think, you know, when Nike came in, Nike, I believe, was Wyden and Kennedy at the time. Um, I could be wrong. Mm, uh, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, yeah, so it was Wyden and Kennedy. I mean, I, I would have killed to, to join Wyden and Kennedy coming out of NYU in 2008. Uh, it was like the dream ad job. Um, you know, they had the budget. They had the money. And they had the notoriety. That if, and they built that. I shouldn't even say notoriety because, you know, that has a negative connotation. But they had uh, everything, the tool set that needed to just say, hey, look at this smaller fish in the ocean, look what they've built. We're going to take our ad dollars and we're going to basically, you know, apply it to this, our legacy brand. And guess what? That's business. And that's what we're facing right now. Um, and I think the, the key thing here is, you know, the question, how could and one have safeguarded themselves from that? Probably knowing someone at Wyden Kennedy who had <laughs> the information that this was going yeah. to happen yeah. outside of that. Um, I think it was going to be very tough. And I think a lot of companies, when they're faced with decisions of, hey, do we sell the company? Hey, mm -hmm. how do we scale this? Um, do we take an additional investment? It's to compete against those moments. Um, and and it's very I, I don't know if I don't know if and one I think one thing the documentaries fail to kind of really address. Did they did they really not see this coming or were there further opportunities to to get out a little bit earlier uh, ahead mm -hmm. of, of Nike, or could uh, and then a follow up to that, could they have even anticipated the the, the cataclysmic effect that would happen? Um, uh, you can dictionary check if I've said that the right way or I made up words. Sometimes I do that. Um, you know, it, for for Nike to come in and, and just do this at that moment, and could they see that this would have such a negative impact on the brand? I think one way to easily yeah. to rationalize that could have been, um, oh well, this will gain more credibility for street ball. Sure. But they didn't see that halo effect. We love to toss around that word halo effect. Well, Nike mm -hmm. just said, hey, we're going to take the ball from you. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, pun intended. And we're going to run with it. And, and that was ultimately the end. Yeah, I did get a sense of like, and I don't know how much of it was just the culture at the time, the lack of digital media. like the, But the one thing that shocked me, and I don't remember what year it was, but like the epic Vince Carter slam dunk contest yeah. performance year. Um, and he was wearing N1 sneakers. And yeah. they weren't paying him and, but he wasn't, so he wasn't officially endorsing them. And like, there was no news around that. Like there was no, like if that happened today and like the best slam dunk artist of all time in the NBA was wearing, you know, a brand like, so there was almost like a naivete like there of like how to, how to leverage that. It was just almost like, at least the sense in the documentary was like, Oh cool. It was just a product placement. Like, and maybe that was, was, was a fork in the road where they were really like, Hey, if we had Vince Carter in our camp, we went that way and, and we signed him and whatever. And instead it was just Nike, Nike, Nike. And they, and they, you know, did what, what Nike does. Yeah. I mean, one of the issues there uh, today that happens, it's amplified across social. It's, you know, played thousands of views, you know, five minutes right after it happens and it lives on at least for a couple of days when it happened back then it's just a moment in time that's cool mm -hmm. and but it's word of mouth uh it doesn't get much more exposure um right. than it does in the moment um so it's it's much more difficult i think and 
you know, the athletic world in general is just very tough. A lot of these athletes have exclusive contracts with apparel providers so that, you know, I don't know what Vince's deals were at the moment at that point, but a lot of them can't even wear another brand because Nike sure. or Adidas locks them in. So, you know, you could not create a groundswell around that moment. You know, brand marketers would, would kill for that today in terms yeah. of that two, two words that we always say, brand awareness. Well, what better way, like you said, than to have the greatest, arguably the greatest dunker of all time in your shoes, but there was no way to amplify that message yeah. and let it live on. And I think that really hurt and one at the time. So as exciting as it was for them, it, it kind of lived in an echo chamber. Yeah. So, I mean, I think as we're, we're coming up on 20 minutes, I think, as you know, this is the perfect kind of snack size, um, mm. you know, oh. a conversation on mind. this. Oh, we're, yeah, best out the snacks. There you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> there, so there, uh, yeah. there we go. Uh, uh, I know you're a fan of, of us. Uh, I'm going to try the professional salt and vinegar. Shout out to Sam for sending these my way. Uh, <laughs> Not really sponsored. I think you have to disclose that, right? Uh, but uh, but Ian, what are you gonna grab? Oh yeah, I think I, I have up here. Um, I have um, some hot chocolate fucks. Oh, I love those. Those are good. Yeah, cheese. But um, as we're as we're eating our fucks, making a lot of crinkle noise on audio. Um, mm. what um. What would be, I'll start while you're chewing, what would be two takeaways, you know, uh, for me, two takeaways that, that a DDC brand can can kind of take away from this now to learn from. Um, and I think for me, it is, you know, one is like, treat your influencers well, treat your creators well, treat your partners well. And I think that was a big kind of overarching theme was that um, they were seen like, you know, the players were seen as employees, but weren't, weren't actually employees and, and almost would was seemed like oh they should be grateful for what they're getting here instead of being like true partners of the brand um so and that came back to bite them in the, in the butt a little bit um the second piece for me is i think like we we just touched on is, is just the threat aspect i mean i think like i joke around about the swot analysis it's sort of annoying it's not fun to do but i mean that was a true threat and maybe they were i mean they knew nike was out there um but regardless they weren't prepared for it and and who knows if that was something they could have prepared for um but yeah so i mean those are those are sort of my two takeaways yeah you know i think for me um maybe an underappreciation of uh retention of existing employees you know there was a little bit that happens but there was you know a little bit of friction um and as soon as you saw you know one or two team members deviate and move uh, or become less interested in the business, uh, you know, they had a, a very negative quarter, right, in terms of the mm -hmm. shoe design or that. So I think that's something that, you know, it's very hard to keep a startup uh, and team together, um, but value those moments, even if, you know, at times, you know, the business leaks, having that experience within your ecosystem is invaluable when, um, when there's those tough moments, um, because you can always learn to pivot from having someone in the organization that's that was there from day one so i think a little bit of, that's more touching on the the founder relationships and um that's something that i took away from it uh, really just having that same consistent team to, to navigate those waters um and then i think ultimately also diversification of marketing channels um you know and one was limited in, in how they could but they did reach out early to um retail partners third party you know Retail was huge for them getting in, uh, you know, at the foot actions of the world, having 
out of house signage in these locations to really create that mm-hmm. brand presence sure. to make them feel bigger than they actually were in the beginning, I think is huge. Um, and I think as a lot of startups are trying to compete with those juggernauts right now, you know, having a great uh, little bit of out of house, you know, advertising mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. hurt. A lot of a lot of companies are scared to do it because you can't measure it at the moment all you can with, with certain partners. But um, I think and one did a really good job of, of making themselves appear bigger than they already were. Uh, and then combining that with a lot of their efforts, you know, within, you know, the courts of the, the East Coast, um, were able to, to grow as a brand faster, probably than they should have. Well, cool. Well, Andy, this is awesome conversation. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me. We'll have to do it again. Oh, for sure. Thanks, Anna. I had a blast. We'll have to, awesome. we'll have to hoop it up sometime, too. Yeah, or, or soccer. I'm It'll be an ugly sight, but, too. you know. <laughs> we get uh, pain medicine sponsorship yeah. after that one. All right, we'll see you. All right, take care.